A blockchain is a data structure that provides decentralized, peer-to-peer data distribution. Bitcoin is the most well-known blockchain, but in the next decade we will see many more blockchains. Most listeners probably know that you could just fork the code of Bitcoin to start your own blockchain, but wouldn't it be nice to know how to build a blockchain from scratch? Daniel Van Flyman is the author of the Medium article, Learn Blockchains by Building One. In this post, he walks you through how to define the code for a blockchain, just like any other web app. He starts with raw Python code and defines the data structures, and then he stands up his simple blockchain app on a web server to give a toy example for how nodes in a blockchain communicate. For me, this was a great article to read, Learn Blockchains by Building One. I've reported on blockchains for over a year, but I have not seen such a clear example with this executable, simplified code that Daniel has in this post. So I really recommend checking it out. The The link is in the show notes. To find all of our coverage of cryptocurrencies, you can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS and Android. You can hear all of our old episodes. They're easily organized by category. And so as you listen, the Software Engineering Daily app We'll get smarter and recommend you content based on the episodes that you're hearing, the categories, the uh, latent signals you're giving off as you listen to an episode. If you don't like this episode, you will easily be able to find something more interesting by using our recommendation system that's custom-built for Software Engineering Daily. And the mobile apps are open-sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily along with several other projects. We're building a new way to consume software engineering content. We would love to get your help if you're interested. If you're looking for an open-source project to hack on, we've got a recommendation system, we've got the web front-end, there's many more projects coming soon, and the Slack channel is hopping with people who are contributing. So we'd love to get your contribution. You can check it out at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. You can join our Slack channel. There is a link on our website on softwareengineeringdaily.com. And you can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'm looking forward to your contribution so we can move off of our legacy WordPress website as soon as possible. I hope you enjoy this episode. It was a great one with Daniel Van Flyman. Daniel Van Flyman is the author of Learn Blockchains by Building One, which is a blog post on Medium. Daniel, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. I enjoyed reading your article. It goes into detail about how to build a blockchain from first principles. It's a breakdown of the data structure of a blockchain, much like in a software engineering class, you learn object-oriented programming, you learn about how to build a stack or a queue or the other fundamental data structures. In this article, you break down the private variables and the static variables and essentially how you build the object of a blockchain and then you describe how to use it, how to build it into an API, how to basically build applications on top of it uh, from a very raw standpoint. So I want to I cover a lot of that material today. And let's start with just the simple question that I've asked a number of times on the, on the show, which is what is a blockchain? So basically, a blockchain is, is actually a very simple data structure. You could imagine it as a ledger or a, a spreadsheet, if you will, where each row uh, in your spreadsheet uh, contains within itself a reference to the row before it. 
And to get a bit technical, that reference is actually a hash of the previous row. I'm not sure how deep down we're going to go, but uh, basically, uh, you know, if you know what a hash is, what this means is if each row has a reference to the row before it with a hash, uh, then any change, you know, further uh, further in the beginning of the of the blockchain is going to mean that all the rows preceding it are wrong, and by wrong I mean they'll contain different hashes. Um, and in its in its simplest sense, that's what a blockchain is. So we could put anything into this spreadsheet. We could put in financial data or data about maybe the number of cars that are on the road for some kind of ride-sharing service. And we could put all kinds of things into a blockchain. The records that you put into a blockchain go into a block. Describe what a block is and how a block is formed. So a block is, we could think of it as a collection of records. As you just said, we could put, we could put anything into a block. We could record a list of transactions. Uh, you know, maybe I'm sending some money to, to you. Uh, we could record that transaction and put it in a block. We could store data in it. We could store, in the case of certain ICOs, we could store encrypted files uh, basically anything you can put in a block, and the the way that the way that um, blocks are formed is once data is inside the block, uh, the the block is that a hash is calculated of that block, and um, that hash is then stored in the next block, which will contain more collections of things. In in Bitcoin and in Ethereum, these blocks are created through the process of mining, where a cryptographic puzzle has to be solved in order to uh, prove that you can uh, build a new block, if you will. So as you've been suggested, blocks are chained together with hashes. Describe how a hash is used within a blockchain. Like, What's the importance of a hash? A hash function is, is a function which takes in, we could think of it, to be very liberal here, we could think of it as any input. And no matter what input you, you give to your hash function, you're going to get, let's just, for example, say that you'll always get a 20-digit random string out of your hash. So I could put in the name Daniel, I'll get 20 characters, uh, random characters uh, out of that hash. And if I change any sort of letter, if I, make it, if I pluralize my name and say Daniels, I'll get an entirely different hash. So... Basically, these records that, that go into a block go through a, a, the same hash function. Uh, in the case of Bitcoin, uh, it's an algorithm called SHA-256, and they output that same, you know, in this case, it's a 256-bit string. So we'll get into a little more details about how these different aspects of blockchains work. Let's motivate the conversation a little bit. Why would somebody want to know how to build a blockchain or furthermore why would somebody want to build their own blockchain i mean that's that's that depends very much on 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 the particular application of it but i i think that it's a the interest in it at the moment is is just about creating an immutable uh, record of data which is you know has has a lot of applications one of which is is currency you could store uh, historical transactions. You might want to uh, have bills of lading. 
if you are uh, in distribution or in mining, you might want to record certain delivery notes. Uh, there are a lot of applications, but they all boil down to having this immutable historical uh, data record, uh, which is which is super useful. Right. Okay. So a blockchain is a data structure, like we've said. What are the properties? What are the private variables of a blockchain? If we're thinking about this in object-oriented programming perspective, mm-hmm. um, well, I I go through a little bit of that in my uh, sorry in my article, and this depends very much on what kind you know what the what kind of implementation you're using in the in the case of ethereum or, or bitcoin um, you have very you have a, a very different kind of data structure for a block but essentially it boils down to what a block looks like and in my example i try and make it as simple as possible by having a timestamp which uh, records the unix time uh, upon which the block was created uh, a hash uh, sorry a previous hash referring to the hash of the the block before it in my example i'm using a, a a list data structure of, of data of records to go into the block, the proof, which we can, we'll probably get into in a, in a few minutes, which is uh, the result of mining and the index of the, of the block, which in Bitcoin, we call it height, but that's, that's the, you know, the auto incrementing ID from, from the beginning of the, of the block, uh, the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Every block in this blockchain has its own properties as well. What are the properties of a block? Oh, uh, sorry. I think I just described the properties of a block. Oh, okay. Um, sorry. A, sorry. A, a, a blockchain itself would be, you know, in, in my example, it's simply a list. It's a list of blocks. And um, that list is linked together by the, ha- by the hashes uh, of the previous blocks. Right. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Yes. So does every new block represent a single new transaction or does a block in the blockchain aggregate multiple transactions together in again like that that depends on the implementation of of which blockchain we're talking about in the case of uh, bitcoin historically i believe that the block size has been one megabyte so Basically, whatever you could fit uh, into that space is considered, you know, your list of transactions. In the in my example, we don't have a max block size. I'm just uh, leaving it open ended for now, so you could insert as many transactions as you want into a block, uh, which is not the case in the real world. But there's the limit is is uh, basically what the what the protocol agrees upon. Okay, so so I got a little confused a moment ago. So the 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 private variables of a blockchain i remember when i was reading your article you've got some arrays like there's an array at least in in your class outline of this mm-hmm. data structure you've got an array that is the chain and you've got another array that is the current transactions can you just describe what these yes. two arrays do when when what are they arrays of are these arrays of blocks or transactions or what exactly okay so uh, in my example we have a we have this kind of the current transactions is a list of transactions that are outstanding that are yet to be included into the next mind block. So uh, perhaps it might be a bit confusing to see that in the blockchain class, but current transactions uh, will be cleared uh, when the new, when the next block is created. So for example, we have a list, which is the blockchain itself uh, called chain, and that's going to be a list of blocks. 
And then we have another list, which is current transactions, which is just a holding area for new transactions coming in that, that our node sees that are going to be included into the next block when it, when it gets mined. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is something that I think we'll get into a, a little bit more when we, when we hop out of the higher level. But I guess to give people a little more context on what you're talking about, you've got these different nodes in the network and they are racing to validate the current transactions. And that's this current transactions array that you're referring to. Different nodes are, are going to have different perspectives for what current transactions actually means because the it's kind of a gradual process when uh, the transactions propagate throughout the network but in any case you know you the whatever set of transactions the the node that we're talking about um, is looking at it can look at those current transactions and try to mine against them and basically when in the mine process which we'll get into a little more detail later you're looking at this set of current transactions. You're viewing it through a mathematical property, like a you're like you're hashing the the current transactions. I think, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, you're hashing like the current transactions, and then you're looking at the the block, the previous block in the blockchain, mm-hmm. and you're trying to find a number that connects those two hashes in a distinct way. Am I describing things correctly? Um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of ambiguity there. This is actually this is actually what, what we talk about when we talk about mining. And what we're actually doing when we, when we talk about mining is we are solving a cryptographic puzzle. Uh, we can get into this now if you like, but it's uh, this puzzle must be very easy to verify. So it must be very easy for me to verify that you as a miner have found the solution to the puzzle. But it, that solution must be very difficult to calculate. And um, in this case, in my example, what we're doing is we're taking, we working on a very, very simple algorithm, which is we are, we are concatenating the previous blocks index and some new number and we're determining if the hash of those two things has four leading zeros at the beginning of it. And if we can find that number, uh, in the exa- I do an example in my article, if we can find that number, then basically we have proven that we found a solution to this puzzle. Mm-hmm. And then the network basically agrees that we can, that it can accept this new block because you as a miner have found a solution. You found you found the proof, which, uh, you know, the algorithm is called the proof of work algorithm, which proves that you've done the work. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll get into that a little bit more later. Just covering again, the components of a block. So a block has a list of transactions. It's got a timestamp. It's got a proof. And it's got the hash of the previous block. So... I think we, we've kind of defined... Oh, did you want to say something? Uh, no, no, sorry. There's okay. also there's also the index. Oh, the index. Okay. Yes. Right. So I think we've, deci- we've, we've defined what a block is. We've kind of defined what a blockchain is. That's the basics of the data structures. How does the first block within a blockchain get instantiated? So the first block is called the Genesis block. And uh, in, in certain implementations, it's, it's simply hard-coded. In Bitcoin, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, you know, made the first block that was considered the Genesis block. And uh, 
anyone that was, you know, anyone that became a node in the network would have that block. And does a Genesis block represent any transactions or is it just something just like a pointer for all the further blocks to refer back to? It, it could have transactions. In the case of Bitcoin, I believe that there was a transaction that uh, included 50 Bitcoins that he sent to someone else. Okay. And how are subsequent new blocks created? Maybe you could just describe kind of the end-to-end high-level process for how yeah. a new block is created after you've got the Genesis block. Yeah, I think this is, uh, this is where most of the confusion comes, you know, comes into play. Basically, in, in certain blockchains like Bitcoin, we have this idea called proof of work, which I likely described um, earlier. And proof of work just means that we're looking for a solution to a puzzle that's easy to verify, but difficult to compute. And what, what, what we do with that, with that solution is we unanimously agree, any node in the network, that if I was mining, that, that Dan has, has found a solution to the next block containing a list of transactions. And if I can prove that I have that solution, then all the nodes on the network are obliged to accept this new block as, as a source of truth and add it to, to their genesis block, if you will, on their, on their local node. So how do transactions get added to a block? Can you clarify that a little more? In, if, we, if we want to talk about Bitcoin or if we want to talk about my example, transactions are propagated through the network using some peer-to-peer protocol. Uh, if I want to make a transaction, miners will be listening for those transactions and they will choose to include them into the next block that, they, that they're trying to mine. And by trying to mine, I mean they're searching for the solution to their to their puzzle mm-hmm. if that makes sense yes so it's 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 luck really i mean if you're this is why in the case of bitcoin it could take uh you know an hour or two to verify that your transaction is actually part of the blockchain because you know uh, if the the network needs to reach consensus and by that i mean the new block has to be added and that block might or might not contain your transaction transactions that get added to a blockchain they eventually need to be approved by everyone so how does that happen because if one person verifies a chain of transactions that's the chain of transactions that that node happens to have how do these end up getting accepted by everybody Right. So one thing that I lightly talk about in my article that I don't implement or go into is a transaction verification mechanism. In the case of Bitcoin, these are called UTXOs, uh, unspent transaction outputs. And basically each node has to have some way, as you said, of knowing that like I actually had Satoshis or Bitcoins or whatever you want, that I actually had that that, uh, currency to begin with. In in my example, we don't do this. I've mentioned that I'm going to implement something uh, in step two. Uh, the reason why I didn't go into it is because it was it didn't seem very necessary to explain what a blockchain was. But we would, to answer your question, we would have to implement some sort of transaction verification algorithm, which might traverse a tree of transactions and look at all my historical transactions and decide whether or not that transaction should be valid. Now, before we get into your description of the the nodes as servers and the nodes interacting with each other, let's let's review the transaction process. So, 
let's say I've got a Bitcoin node that's stood up on my computer and people can use my node to uh, submit transactions between their wallet and somebody else's wallet. They submit a transaction to me. Maybe I get a chain of transactions and I'm also going to, I'm a miner. So my process of mining is I'm going to aggregate those transactions that I have seen, that I've received from other nodes or from directly people submitting transactions to me. And uh, I'm going to mine, which is I'm taking those transactions, I'm hashing them to some sort of unique number, and I'm uh, I'm comparing that to the, the hash of the previous block, and I'm trying to find. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm maybe getting this wrong, but I'm trying to find a number. I'm the the process of solving the puzzle is finding a number where if I take that number and I think hash it with the current transaction, it gives me some number that has, oh gosh, I'm getting wrong, that has what, tra- <laughs> trailing zero, a number of trailing zeros that matches with the previous block. Just re- refresh us on the, the, the yeah. this is proof of work. Describe yes. proof of work. Your, you give a, such an elegant and simple example of proof of work and I'm butchering <laughs> it. So go ahead and describe it for uh, us. Yeah, I mean, um, I've implemented a very simplified proof of work algorithm that, that's actually in reality not too different to Bitcoin's one. And just to just to describe it very very simply, and this is probably this wouldn't stand up in production, but essentially what we're doing by proof of work is we might take the hash of the previous block, and we might find some new number to concatenate that hash with. Now remember that the hash of the previous block is something that cannot be changed. It's a constant. It's not. It's not going away. So we we take that hash. We take, and now we, we start looking for a new number. We, we put it in an endless for loop and we, we start incrementing one, two, three, four, and we concatenate this new number to the end of the previous hash. And then we hash this, this result. So we, we hash the concatenation of some new number that we're looking for, the previous hash, and we see if this new hash has four leading zeros. And the number of leading zeros might determine the difficulty of, of mining. And you'll find that if you that if you try this out, the addition of a of, of a new zero will, will make a gigantic difference to the time it takes to to find this new solution. And and the new solution is obviously this this number that we're searching for. So let's say that we have the hash of the previous block for simplicity's sakes is ABC, and now we concatenate that with the number five. And then we try hash that and we see if that new hash has four leading zeros. If it does have four leading zeros, then that's the proof. Five becomes the proof of the current block which we're mining. And that gets propagated to the rest of the network. And all nodes can see because it's very easy to verify, remember. It's very easy to verify that the hash begins with four zeros uh, when concatenated with five. Obviously, I'm using a very, very simple example here just for, for an explanation's sake, but essentially that is what proof of work is. And when you hear about things like ASIC miners in the case of Bitcoin, these are hardware implementations of, of hashing algorithms that are incredibly fast and allow you to, to hash a really, really big data set of, of uh, possible solutions. The feature that we're looking for with a proof of work problem is that 
it is difficult to find the solution, but it is easy to verify. And just to dive deeper, in an example where there's only one node on this blockchain network that we're building, the proof of work doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really matter because let's say we had a single node that's essentially like a bank. People can just submit transactions to it. The bank is the uh, is the single node on the ledger and you know the bank just takes care of everything. Uh, the beauty of Bitcoin is that you have multiple nodes and those different nodes can accept different streams of transactions. And you can have competing streams of transactions. You can have different views of the present. But first of all, the longest chain will win in any given scenario. But the longest chain also has to, you have to solve a problem. I mean, each of these, you might have nodes with different views of the world. And mm -hmm. they're trying to solve different problems. Whoever solves the problem first and manages to propagate that solution to the network the fastest is going to have the view on is going to have the view on the world that will stand. Uh, am I describing things correctly? Yes, uh, exactly correctly. Um, at any given time, there there might be you know multiple sources of truth uh, as ha nodes claiming to have the longest line. A longest chain and this this is why um, usually when you submit a transaction in bitcoin it's it's always safe to like wait for a few new blocks to be mined just to be sure that your transaction made it into the blockchain interesting so that's actual practical concern for people who are doing stuff with the production blockchain there are ways and means of verifying transactions but essentially yeah that's that's uh that's why it's um that's one of the reasons why it takes so long to to transfer uh sorry to transact because you have to wait for you you have to wait for consensus which is which is to say that uh, you know we have these mul we have multiple chains going that each claim to be the source of truth let's see which one the network as a whole reaches consensus to I see, and, and this this is why it's called a race, right? The, because we have lots of miners all racing for these solutions, and and uh, they not they not unique solutions. Hmm. Okay, well, I think you sound like somebody that I could ask some questions about the scaling uh, debates, uh, <laughs> but let's let's stick to the basics a little bit more. So after we have set up these data structures. And the the basic methods are proof of work methods for building a single node of a blockchain. We're gonna want to stand it up as an API that can be used to serve requests between nodes. And I should I should just mention right now, people should really check out this article if you're if you're looking to learn the the nitty gritty details of how to build a blockchain. I found this to be such an elegant article. You've got really you've got code like you've got code that will run it's just python code for how to build a simple blockchain uh and it's just really unique and so I, I i'll put this in the show notes and i encourage people to check it out but what are the methods that the blockchain the blockchain api needs to be able to service um well if we're talking about like actually let's say that we're having a semi sort of production environment the most important thing that we would have to implement would be this idea of a of some sort of gossip network. In other words, we need some sort of way of having peer discovery. This might be agreeing that all nodes that spin up uh, spin up uh, all listen on on the same port, 
In the case of Bitcoin, it's eight triple three. Let's just say that they that they all agree that we listen on the on the same port. In my example, it's five thousand. And then maybe what your node could do is is start trying to hit IPs on port five thousand. See if anything responds with an actual request to tell uh, Dan, who's looking for a new node, to tell Dan that I am in fact another node. And then what I can do is I can start aggregating as a node a list of other known nodes, you know, in that I know about. And if a new node reaches me, I can then broadcast this new list. And th- this is this is the basis of a peer-to-peer network, right? And once I ha- once I have this knowledge of other nodes on the network. When I when I start re, when I start receiving transactions, maybe I need an endpoint called receive transactions. I can start broadcasting those transactions to other nodes that I know about in an agreed upon way. And this is these are these are the these are the the, the main endpoints that you need. You need an endpoint to to do some sort of peer discovery that that would dump a list of uh, known nodes on the network. I would need one to broadcast transactions. And then in my in my example, uh, we talk about having an endpoint for mining, which which isn't necessary. And this is just for for example's sake. But if you were a node, if you were a mining node, I would imagine that you would always be mining, and that node would look pretty different to to a semi node or a full node on the network. To initiate a transaction on the blockchain, a user sends a transaction request to the transaction endpoint on our blockchain server. And if we're talking about the global a global blockchain with a bunch of different nodes, the user could just send it to any node, seemingly. And, Correct. and the idea is it should propagate. That's the idea of a peer-to-peer network where there's consensus involved. What happens when a user sends that transaction to one of these random nodes? This depends on the protocol being used, but essentially that node should be responsible for propagating that transaction so that uh, mining nodes in the network would be able to see it and start including that transaction in the next block that they're currently mining. Why um, Why is it within the sorry. interest of those nodes to propagate the transaction? Wouldn't you want to just grab the transaction and then start mining immediately? Um, so, you know, we can we can probably get into this, but in, in the case of... Uh, Bitcoin, there are transaction fees. So someone submitting a transaction might advertise a transaction fee, in which case it would be in the miner's best interest to include that transaction in the next block. But essentially, this is the this is the protocol that we have to that we have to agree on in order to form a peer to peer network that we can broadcast new transactions, new nodes can accept new transactions, and we can perform peer discovery about other nodes. So you define the mining endpoint as well. So you're, you 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 describe the blockchain API just like any other API would be described. You know you have public facing endpoints or you know just endpoint server endpoints, and then you have the methods that are defined with you know that happen when you execute that remote endpoint. Mm-hmm. We already talked about the transaction endpoint another one is the mining endpoint so what would the mine endpoint on the server when would that be called when would we want to call that so so the mining endpoint is just there for illustrative purposes as i said you might have a if you're a mining node 
I would imagine that you would always be mining. You wouldn't have to tell your node to mine. And this is just part of my example. So that endpoint is simply there to, to tell your node to begin mining whatever transactions it has. And what happens during that call to mine? I know we've we've broken this down a couple of times, but I think it's worth emphasizing once more. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when when you, when you call that endpoint, uh, your node begins. Begin, so your node looks at the list of current transactions. It then includes that in the next block, and it begins searching for a. It runs the proof of work algorithm as we described, and it starts searching for a solution. And if it finds that solution, it adds its new block to its blockchain, and it clears the list of outstanding transactions. Mm -hmm. As we said before, the single node could theoretically service these requests, but we want to build a network with a consensus mechanism. Let's say we want to set up four other nodes within our network. So we have five total nodes. What methods that we have not discussed yet do we need to add to these nodes? How do we get them networking with each other? Right. So essentially, we need two new methods. The first one is to verify, is to return a node's current blockchain from beginning to end. So one, one uh, in, in my article, one of, the, one of the endpoints we implement is called, uh, let's just say, get blockchain. And what that does is that node simply returns its entire blockchain for the, for the inspection of another node. So a neighboring node might see four new nodes on, on the network and it might say, okay, everyone, I need to make sure that I've got the source of truth blockchain. And maybe it does this at periodic intervals. But that, that once, once serving that chain, the rest of the nodes have an opportunity to discover if that chain is valid. And if so, if the, is that chain longer than my chain? If it is, then I'm going to replace my current chain uh, with, this, with this new chain that appears to be valid. And this is how this is how consensus is is sort of propagated through the network, right? We we have we have competing chains, and whichever one appears to be the longest chain to me as a node, I'm going to accept as truth. What happens? Uh, and sorry, no, go, go, ahead. go ahead. No, yeah, please. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the one endpoint. So so that would be we'll call it slash chain, which would return my chain. And another endpoint might be called register, which is another which which would be an endpoint that could receive a new chain from a neighboring node in order to to validate the chain. Okay. So what happens if we want to add a sixth node here? When a new node wants to join the network, what does it have to do? Um, well, it has to it, it has to um, first see if there are any neighboring nodes. And start accepting uh, lists of neighboring nodes so that it can maintain some sort of uh, directory of, of other nodes on the network. Um, in my example, I think I, I call it node slash register, um, which will accept uh, you know a list of new nodes in the form of, of IP addresses. Okay, let's refresh people once more. We've talked about accepting a transaction with a single node. You. You know, you, you receive the transaction, you add it to your list of transactions, and you're mining to process the transactions and accept them. Give more of an overview of how the transaction processing differs if there are multiple nodes involved. Like, and, and some of the conflicts that can, that can happen, like when nodes end up with different chains, 
you know, you could talk in the context of your simple blockchain example, or if you want to give some yeah. more complicated real world examples. Well, um, okay, let's let's talk very high level uh, in my simple example. Let's say that Node A has, uh, you know, receives one transaction and its chain length is 10. And Node B also has a chain length of 10 but receives two new transactions. This is one of the cases where it's simply a race. If, and let's say that both these nodes are mining. So we have node A that's got one, one new transaction, and we have node B that also has the exact same blockchain but receives two new transactions. Whichever node finds the, the, the solution to the proof-of-work algorithm first is basically the winner. And any, tra- any outstanding transactions, so let's say that node A finds the solution first, and node B is kind of stuck with these, with these transactions. In this case, we have, you know, we have we have this race. Node A is the winner because uh, uh, Node A's blockchain is longer, and that node can then start propagating that blockchain to the network, and that that happens very much organically, uh, you know, at periodic intervals. It's you know, it just it reaches consensus by propagation. That's one of the cases that can happen, uh, and in that case, uh, the transaction will just have to be retried. Um, the outstanding transaction on node B would just have to be retried until some miner might include it in the next in the next block. So that that's that's what that's one thing that can happen. A second thing that can happen is let's say that uh, node B has a valid chain. Uh, node A has a valid chain, but the last block, for whatever reason, is in is invalid on Node B. In this case, we would talk about having a notion of an orphaned block. In which case, no, it's it's simply unfair to Node B. He wasted computational power trying to find these two new blocks where the rest of the network has gone in the direction of Node A. This is just a par for the course. I mean, we have to we have to have some sort of way of, of resolving them, and un, unfortunately, it's by longest chain first, and uh, kind of uh, there's a good deal of luck involved too. Mm. Does does that answer the question? It does. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that though. So, how does a consensus resolution happen? Like, how do we come to consensus during a conflicting event? Like, if there are two conflicting views of the world, how do you come to consensus? Um, well, it's uh, these are agreed upon rules as part of the protocol of your blockchain. Let's stick to the example and we'll say that the longest valid chain, the longest valid chain of blocks is authoritative. In other words, the longest chain of blocks is the source of truth. Um, if and And that's something that can't be argued with because remember, these... These proofs are very uh, easy to verify. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that means that a new node, when faced with a conflict, if I'm node A and you're node B, and my blockchain length is 10 and yours is 11, it's my duty to check that, that if, you, if, you're propagating, um, if you're propagating a longer chain, it's my duty to check that it's valid. And if it is valid, I'm going to replace my entire local chain with your one. Mm-hmm. Let's bring this to the real world. Explain how different your toy example is from the Bitcoin blockchain. 
Um, yeah, it's uh, it, in in theory, it is at a at a very high level. It's it's not too different. Bitcoin also uses the proof of work algorithm. That's that's actually quite similar. With Bitcoin, the difficulty uh, the difficulty of the mining process is changed at certain intervals to maintain you know a certain number of blocks being mined per hour. Um, so there's there's definitely more complication there. There's also the notion of transmitting only the heads of blocks, which we haven't got into, but the heads basically contain some metadata about the block, which means that the entire block itself, in the case of Bitcoin, doesn't have to be downloaded by each node. So, so there are there, there, there are like there is a difference between between my toy example and Bitcoin, obviously. But I chose not to make it too too complicated. I just wanted people to to understand. Uh, you know, what a blockchain is. Another difference is in terms of the propagation of transactions uh, works a lot differently in Bitcoin. And of course, Bitcoin has a, a very well-known and published protocol for peer discovery, which uh, we don't do at all in my example. In my example, we just basically registering new nodes on the network manually. Um, which is something that like in, in a, in a follow-up article, I'd love to change. I'd love to make it more dynamic. But uh, in the toy example, obviously, uh, you know, you can't get too complicated. What you referred to with the metadata and new nodes not necessarily needing to store the entire transaction history. Could, could you talk about that more? Like if I stand up a new node in Bitcoin, do I need mm-hmm. to download all the past transactions or just do I just need the head of the Merkle tree to essentially be a condensed history? So in in Bitcoin, you, I, I I'm not I don't claim to be an expert about Bitcoin, but I I do believe that there are three kinds of nodes in Bitcoin. Uh, you could be a, a semi node, which is uh, where you, as you just described, you don't need to download the 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 full blockchain, or you can you can be a full node, which is um, I think what if you download Bitcoin Core, I think that's what it attempted uh, attempts to do. It requires about 160 gigs of space on your machine, and it starts downloading the authoritative blockchain from the network. And then the third node, of course, is if you want to be a miner. And Bitcoin, Bitcoin has many implementations of, of, you know, depending which client you download, they've all got to agree on the Bitcoin protocol itself. So they're all going to implement the same functions, the same the same endpoints. Uh, it's it's just up to up to the implementation how it does that. So at a, at a very high level, yes, we have a blockchain. No, it's it's not nearly as complicated or in depth as the the Bitcoin blockchain. Is there this this idea where some nodes can have just the head of the Merkle tree, or I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it, but the condensed volume of transactions rather than the entire transaction history. Is this a point of contention, the fact that some nodes can have don't have to have that whole history? I I believe that that Bitcoin implements the the the, the SPV, which is the 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 validation layer of um, transactions. And as far as I understand it, uh, if you are just validating transactions, you don't you, uh, very careful saying this. I, I might be proven wrong, but I believe that if you if you only have the heads of blocks, there is a way to verify transactions without downloading the entire blocks themselves. 
Yeah, I mean, that's. it seems like that would be totally possible. I just wonder at this point why people would still need to download the entire transaction history if they, if they like, why that's even an option. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's... The- you got you got to remember that this is completely decentralized and if we want to have if we want to have validated consensus in the network and we want to maintain a 51% source of truth in the network we need to have some source of authority which is which is these entire blocks sure but if you've agreed that the history up to uh, t1 is is defined as this hash then why would you need the transactions that came before t1 why would you need the actual transactions if you essentially have the proof of them condensed into that hash i'm i i'm not 100 percent okay. sure and i i though i'm hesitant i'm hesitant to to offer no a problem, guess no problem uh, do, um, we don't need to w- w- one thing i can say is that i i do know that there's that um you know the simplified payment verification of Bitcoin does have some weaknesses that that needs to that means that there need to be full nodes on the network in order for for them to to fully verify mm. a, a, a historical transaction. Okay, all right. Do you have any idea how your example compares to the Ethereum implementation of a blockchain? Yeah, at a at a very high level. I mean, we we can certainly talk about it. In the case of Ethereum, you know, in my example, we are storing transactions. In the case of Ethereum, we 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 actually have an opportunity to store bytecode, which uh, can be interpreted by each node and can actually be run. So Ethereum allows Ethereum, if you think about it, is essentially this distributed computer that allows new nodes mining to to sort of run code, which is and that code is 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 called smart contracts because it's uh, it's immutable code. Uh, it can do something upon validation. Mm-hmm. Right. So, given that you're somewhat embedded in this community, can you describe to me? And and you're also good at describing things in in a little more layman's terms, as layman as we can get in the Bitcoin world. Can you articulate? the scaling debates, some of the recent scaling debates. Like I did a show recently <laughs> on SegWit and I was really out of my comfort zone. I didn't really know how to approach the topic very well. I did as much preparation as I could have, but can you can you talk about that? Like what's the what are the debates going on there? Um I'm not I wouldn't claim to be again. I'm not an expert <laughs> on this and uh I'm I'm worried to get involved in the debate. But at a high level there's a bunch of core developers of of Bitcoin Core who agree very strongly uh, f- uh, in this new sort of algorithm called SegWit, and there's a there's a bunch of other people who don't agree with it and want uh, SegWit two x. Um, and there's a huge debate in the community right now. So I I don't know I I don't want to get uh, I don't want to get out of my comfort okay. zone by getting into this. <laughs> This is this is such a hard topic for me to cover. I it's I mean I'm I'm just like continuing to beat my head against the wall and I hope the listeners don't care because it's it, it's like this and deep learning and there's like some other things where it's just like I'm not sure if the casual podcast host that tries to be a dilettante in <laughs> all kinds of different software engineering topics is the right person to explain these things. I'm not sure if I should be doing these at all. 
Well, uh, I mean, you're not wrong. Uh, this stuff is so complicated. I mean, part of the reason my article has, has attracted so much attention and has done so well is because this stuff is difficult to understand. And um, I think I've done a pretty good job of simplifying some of that complication. And the fact that it's so popular owes to the fact that there's so much confusion in the space. It's 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 always it's always going to be um, it's always going to be tricky to understand everything. What are the other hangups that people have when they talk to you when they contact you and they say, "Hey, I love your article. I didn't get X." What are the things that people are confused about? Yeah, I think a I think a very thoughtful problem that people have is they ask me, "Well, how can we know that this transaction is is valid?" and that's a that's a very loaded question because in the in the form of Bitcoin you have this notion of unspent transaction outputs or UTXOs, and th- this is a th- you know this is this is one of the problems with my example is there I don't implement any way of of verifying transactions. Um, one thing that people also don't uh, get is how can they prove that a transaction belonged to me? Well, in the real world, I'll tell you that if you want to submit a transaction, then you have to sign that transaction with your key, and then the rest of the network can can prove that if that your public key is the is is the source of truth for that transaction. We don't implement that in the example because it's just it's too complicated for for the person who just wants to learn what a blockchain is to sort of dive into and say, okay, well, here's how like public private key cryptography works. And now you need to have this uh, sort of depth traversal of transactions and you need to, to start creating a UTXO table. And, you know, it just gets more and more complicated that, that you've got to cut it off at some, at some level and say, right, we, these are the atomic things that we want to explain. And these are the things that you need to know. If you want to learn more, I can point you in that direction. Talk more about some of the differences between your toy example and a production blockchain. What are, what are the other aspects of the infrastructure that you know you could not cover because this was, you were just discussing the basics? So these okay. So if we were to productionize my example, well, firstly, for for any sort of protocol to to be accepted by the community at large. It has to have it has to have solid academic backing, which I don't have. The yellow paper for Ethereum or, or Satoshi's original paper for blockchain, blockchain, they're amazing because they took into account so many different things. They they took into account block difficulty and what would happen down the line and how things would scale. Uh, and and as you know, that's already a, a, a giant source of contention at the moment. These are these are the kind of questions that that we would have to answer if we wanted to take our our small blockchain and turn it into something that's that's ready for production. And unfortunately, they don't have easy answers. Uh, one of one of the one of the giant contentions with Bitcoin, this whole SegWit uh, drama that's unfolding, relates to the block size of of the Bitcoin block. Some people want it to be two megs. Some, the original limit was one meg. Uh, now we have to make another layer underneath Bitcoin to support this this bigger block size. These these are all things that have to be sort of they they have to reach consensus in the community at large if they if if people are willing to play ball. And unfortunately, uh, I'm not I'm not a professor. I don't have a team of of people that are going to tell me how things are going to break down the line. If you're talking about in the interim, how would you productionize this? I would say that you would have to implement some solid peer-to-peer protocol 
for this new network and a very easy way of validating transactions just at a, at a basic level. Right. All right. Well, Daniel, this has been great. I, it's been really informative. I found your article really useful. What else are you working on these days? Wh- who are you? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> um, thank you. Um, I, I'm a software engineer. I'm from South Africa. I'm sure you could tell by my accent. It's still pretty thick. I work for a company called Blink Health. Uh, we in the health tech space. We make prescription drugs very cheap for for Americans, for all Americans. Uh, you can Google what Blink does, but we we're we're an exciting startup to to work for. We're based in Manhattan. The the way that Blink works is you can buy any drug that you've been prescribed through the Blink websites and go pick it up at any pharmacy at a massive massive discount. And yeah, so I'm looking. I'm very, distributors or like you manufacture them cheaper or what exactly? Well, because of the number of patients that we have, we're able to negotiate cheaper okay. prices for certain drugs. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm very interested in things that help people. I really want to want to, you know, I view the tech space as something that could be used for, for the good of everyone. And uh, th- therefore I'm drawn to, to solutions that make life a little mm-hmm. bit better. Um, one one thing I've I've really been thinking about lately is is using some sort of blockchain technology in order to democratize healthcare, like uh, EMRs or what exactly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it struck me as as pretty weird that um, you know you as a as a patient don't don't actually own your your medical history. You know these these giant EMRs, uh, you know, doctors keep your chart, doctors keep your history. If you were to move somewhere else in the world, um, you would be faced with two problems. The first problem is, is how do I, how do I get my, all my medical history out of, out of this like really conflated system and doctors use different EMRs. And the second problem is like this information isn't standardized in a format that's universal. And these two problems make, I think, uh, blockchain a very compelling solution for for this um for, for example you might encrypt your medical history uh, you, that might be stored on the blockchain nodes might be incentivized to to sort of store this information um that would sort of that would demand that there would be some sort of standardized way of representing um healthcare information um but yeah the, the, there are a lot of there are a lot of interesting applications yeah that sounds great to me i certainly I'm hoping for that future. How far do you think we are from people being able to build that kind of stuff? That's it still feels like that's like I mean, of course you and I would love to say that's gonna happen in the next two years, but <laughs> kinda feels like five I, or ten years at a minimum, right? Till we till we get yeah. to that kind of stuff. I think that the, the 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 technical challenges are are probably they pale in comparison to the to the bureaucratic governmental challenges. You're yeah. dealing with the U.S. healthcare industry, which is at least ten to fifteen years behind almost every other industry. It's probably the biggest challenge is, is regulation and uh, you know dealing with 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 uh, with government. Uh, I'd say that that's the that's the massive. That's the massive uh, thing that's going to take forever. Well, I, I talked to this um, company, Oscar, recently, and Oscar was really interesting because mm-hmm. you know they're basically basically building an entire healthcare stack. They started with insurance, 
but they're opening up clinics mm-hmm. and you know you've got places like one medical that are opening up their own chain of clinics uh you've got uh front i think is the is the new one in san francisco mm-hmm. where they basically say you know what <laughs> screw the existing healthcare system we're building <laughs> full stack everything though these kinds of places i think are promising because they could be the early adopters of this kind of stuff yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I, I think that the, the startup space in healthcare is one of the most interesting spaces to watch. You know, healthcare itself is quite interesting. It's the only industry where the cash price doesn't fetch you the cheapest price. What I mean by that is if you if you try pay cash for medication or for a doctor's visit or, or for anything, you're going to pay the highest price possible because you're not incentivized to pay cash. You're incentivized to find the right insurer. Which is which is you know super super nuts to me. Mm. That is perverse. Okay, well we should do another show in the future sometime about healthcare stuff because it sounds like that's you know where a lot of your passion lies and uh, and I would love to talk about Blink Health some because the prescription the technology around prescriptions and I, I, you know I, I would love to dive into how you solve the chicken and egg and got enough volume coming through Blink Health to negotiate those prices down sounds like a really interesting conversation we could have yeah definitely and i'm more than happy to have that conversation all right daniel well thanks for coming on software engineering daily it's been a real pleasure and i enjoyed your article jeff thank you so much for having me i'm I'm so happy that that my articles help people understand this complicated sort of world that we're in and uh, i look forward to speaking to you in the future Um, have a wonderful day